and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Slim Chance and Squeezebox from their new album, New Cross Road. We're playing Slim Chance because I'm speaking today to Billy Nichols, a member of the current lineup of the band. Billy's a brilliant songwriter and pair of musicians and artists such as The Small Faces and The Who... And um, this podcast, um, you'll get to hear his story over the past 50 years. So here's my podcast with one of my songwriting heroes, Billy Nichols. Is that Billy? It's Jason here. Oh, hello, Jason. Yeah. Honestly, Billy, it is such a pleasure to speak to you. Um, Followed your music for for such a long time. It's great to to have you on the podcast. Um, It's a pleasure. I'm I'm glad you like the stuff I'm doing. That's really nice. You know, one of the key reasons I wanted to talk to you at this point in time is is the new Slim Chance album. How how far back has your sort of current involvement with Slim Chance been? Because obviously you've got very very strong connections with you know the members. Yeah, well, it's, it was um, the connection really goes back to Ronnie Lane. Obviously, it, Ronnie was a really good friend of mine, and as were all, all the small faces. But um, Ronnie and I. Um, at one point went off, I'm not sure what year it was, but it was before Slim Chance. It was after we'd split up with um, uh, the Faces. And we went off to Ireland together in a Land Rover, on his Land Rover, and uh, a, few, a few other bits and pieces. And the two of us toured Southern Ireland for a few weeks, um, just playing in the pubs. And um, it, it, we really enjoyed it. We were doing a lot, some of Ronnie's stuff, some Dylan, Every Brothers, Dillard, you know, all sorts of people we were, we were singing songs by, and um, and you know some of mine, I think some of mine. But anyway, it was just the two of us. I think we were called, Ronnie called us foot and mouth, <laughs> which didn't actually go down very well with the farmers in Ireland. But they 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 love music so much in that country, and they just um, open arms. As soon as they saw our guitars, they just loved us, and we just played in pubs throughout seven nights. And when when we got back, Ronnie was, I think he was bitten by. He was he really loved that idea of traveling and playing that sort of music and nothing too, you know, necessarily rocky, you know. Um, mm. But we, we sort of parted. We, he, he moved to Wales and um, I didn't see that much of him. And then he set up a band, the Slim Chance Band. And um, I wasn't part of that. But um, later on, uh, about a year later, I think I, um, I was doing some recording in, Wardour Street in the Markey Studios in Wardour Street and um, with John Lynn it was a precursor to doing the White Horse album in Los Angeles oh, yeah. and um, to send the demos of the stuff that we were doing over John came over and we used Slim Chance well it was basically um, Billy Livesey Bruce Rowlands Steve and Steve Bingham um, in the studio there and then we sent the demos over and got a deal with um, Capitol Records in America I mean, and so the, the, the connection goes right back then. You know. Yeah, and um, in assembling the uh, the tracks for New Cross Road, um, I mean, I I, I chose um, to to open the show uh, Squeeze Box, which is um, obviously a Who track, but that, there's a story around that that that's a a track that Ronnie Lane sort of championed to to Pete anyhow. So again, it all it all ties in. From what I can remember, um, I think Pete said to me that he played it to Ronnie. And Ronnie really loved it, but then when the Who did it, he didn't. He didn't like it that much. <laughs> he wanted to do. I think he wanted to do it in a different way, yeah. um, which is typical of Ronnie. And you know, it, it didn't happen. But there you are. Yeah, he did 
from what I can remember, Pete told me that he did play it to him, yeah. Yeah, and do you think that the Slim Chance version kind of then suits the sort of style that, that Ronnie would have I loved? think, yeah, I think so, but then... Um, I don't. I don't really feel that we've we've done it that differently in a way. Mm. Um, obviously, the who of who, you know. I mean, and Roger singing it is just like, makes it a totally different thing, and that's in that respect. But yeah, I suppose we made it a little bit more more of a slim chance song. But um, it's. Uh, I think it's very in keeping with the actual way Pete wrote it. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then this, this, you know, there's a really great range of material, different writers, old songs, new songs. One of the older songs on the album is Annie. Yeah, Ronnie, it was written by Ronnie, Eric Clapton, and Ronnie's wife, Katie. But I've always loved that song. I just, you know, it's, it's a song I feel that I could have, you know, mm. written myself in without sounding too gracious. I just, it's, it's, it's ideal for me to sing, in other words. And it's it's a very it's a great sentiment. Love the song. Always have done. And Ronnie did a great job. That was on the, um, I think it was on Rough Mix, was it? Yeah. Yeah, which I which I that's where I first heard it because I sang on that album as well. So because I, I I read that some of the Slim Chance guys played on that original version. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah I didn't know that. But it's um yeah, it's a great great song. Children call Annie Every leaf must fall Annie 
going to go back in time and then then bring us bring us up to date as, as the tracks uh commence uh where we'll be finishing with Q. so go straight back kind of into sort of the, the period when you're back into sort of mid mid 60s you're recording demos um i want to uh play a a, a track of yours called umbrella song which is i think is one of your demos in that period but i've I've heard that you've got a great story of how you met George Harrison and then it led you to sort of recording yeah. demos for Dick James. Yeah, I was living in Roehampton, which was about a bus ride away from where George was living in Isha, Weybridge. And um, I was just beginning to write songs and I, my auntie gave me an gr- old Grundig, which, Grundig tape recorder. And um, I recorded some stuff on the Grundig, which had four four heads or something it's not a four track but it's, you could record four times on one tiny bit of tape well what happened was that I, I I recorded some of my stuff I went to see George knocked on his door I didn't know him um, and he was very gracious and said yeah I'll have a listen to it and um, yeah. I came back the week after because um, he said come back a week and I, in the week so I'll tell you what I think and um, I knocked on the door and he opened the door and he said uh, I said well, what do you think and he said I was about 16 at this time and and I think Rubber Soul had just come out or something. I can't remember. But um, <laughs> he said, well, yeah, it's good stuff. I didn't know you wrote I Left My Heart in San Francisco. You know? And because my sister had recorded over, over one of the tracks. And so it was, <laughs> you could bleed, you know, you could, he, but he could hear what I'd done. But there was there was that track on it as well, you know, as it were, coming alongside it. And um, But he said, well, what I heard in the background was really nice. So if you could do it again, come back, which I did. And he loved it. And he... After that, I come and visit him, and I play him stuff, and I just actually I started going hanging out with him really, and um, and he sent my stuff to Dick James. Dick James lost the tape, and then he said, "Because I've lost it, would you like to come and do a demo disc?" <laughs> That's what it's called in those days, which I did. And Caleb Quay was the engineer, ah. and I recorded that, and then somehow it got next door, bang next door to Andrew Oldham, who heard the track fire. His A and R guy, I can't remember his name. I'll think, I'll think of it in a minute. And um, I went to see him. Ray Holiday was the guy who heard the stuff first. He was working for Andrew Oldham. He's no, no longer with us, but he he played for Andrew. Andrew loved it. And um, to cut a long story short, I went for an interview, and he gave me a job as a resident songwriter at Immediate Records for uh, twenty quid a week. And that's that's how I started. But I, I was, as I say, I was hanging around with George and. I think if I hadn't got a, a deal with, not a deal, but a job at Immediate Records, I would have probably ended up at Apple because George would have taken me in there, I think. you know. But that's that's another conjecture. Uh, but, yeah, so as I say, I used to hang around with George and we'd, we'd go to sessions like Jackie, to Abbey Road. I, went to, uh, I think it was Jackie Lomax session with Eric, Eric Clapton and then we stayed up all night, <laughs> as you did in those days, and then went straight on to... Trident Studios, I think it was in Wardour Street, mm-hmm. and they were doing Dear Prudence, and so it was a bit like, you know, it was very, very exciting time. Mm-hmm. But Umbrella Song was that um, you mentioned earlier was uh, just a demo that never got on to anything until much later. It was it was considered for the Would You Believe album, but I think it it eventually I put it out on a, a compilation album of, of the sixties stuff, but it, it didn't make the cut really. I'm pretty 
vividly described how he became a songwriter for for the sort of immediate uh, stable. One of the the tracks recorded in that that sort of early period was um, Del Shannon because I understand Andrew yeah. was recording uh, um, you know sessions with Del, which I don't think the full album got released until a bit later. But there's a track of yours called "Cut and Come Again." We yeah, were you involved with any of that, or were you just yeah, kind of I doing think, your demos? Um, no, I, I think that Andrew was doing this album with him, and he, he but Andrew had heard "Cut and Come Again," a song I wrote uh, called "Led Along," especially for Del Shannon because. It was, if you listen to Led Along, it was, it was, so, it was built for him, really. Um, I think he did another song as well. Yeah. I'm not sure, but um, I haven't heard that album for ages. But then, um, yeah, so I sang backing vocals, I think, on that album at Olympic Studios in Barnes. Um, but that's all I can really tell you about it. Like, it. Because I was a resident songwriter, Andrew had carte blanche to what I was doing. And, um, yeah, just pick and choose for what, what he wanted, really. And I think Darnell Gillespie cut one as well, and I did some backing vocals. Did some backing vocals with her, yeah, on on her album.
So what then led Andrew to realising actually it'd be great to record you as a, a solo artist as opposed to just a songwriter? Well, a guy called Jeremy Paul brought in a song and I loved it. And um, and so did Ronnie Lane and Steve Merritt and the rest of the guys in, in the band. And um, they said, why don't we just go in and do it? Because we had really i mean andrew almost took over olympic studios in barnes yeah. i mean i mean i was de- demoing all the time whenever i wanted to in region sound studios around the corner in denmark street that was my second home and so was olympic and we we had it block booked for olympic and so we just went in one day one night when they when they were doing when they were recording and we did would you believe a demo of would you believe andrew heard it and said you know, then he, he put he wanted to put his stamp on it and put lots of backing singing by me and like sped up vocals and um and all sorts of stuff we i think we put tuba and banjo on it but andrew put orchestra and i don't know what else lots of other stuff on it but um but once we'd finished that when andrew had got his his put his mark on it andrew decided he wanted to do an album with me that's how it started You can really hear him in the mix on and on vocals on on that uh, Would You Believe track. Yeah, yeah, and he's also singing backing vocals on uh, the very last track. It brings me down. There's ah. both here, both he and I are doing sort of very sort of oh, 
I can't want to describe it, but very, very free backing vocals at the very end of, and, and in the middle. He, I think Steve was singing backing vocals all the way through that song, yeah.
track which was recorded on on in in that period and released in uh, would you believe was uh, London Social Degree, which is one of my personal favourites, and that really does seem to vividly capture that that London's musical scene at the, at the time and the sort of buzz around that. Yeah, I think that's the one that Darnley Gillespie recorded. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, really what had happened was I'd heard Sergeant Pepper, and um, even though I, I wasn't taking, I, n- I never have ever took mm. um, LSD or, or any psychotrop, um, it was just a very fashionable thing to do. And so London Social Degree, I just, you know, it's just using it really. <laughs> it was one of those sort of yeah. things you did. But And everyone thinks that Would You Believe was a um, psychedelic album. Well, do you know what? I may disappoint everyone. It was done at that time, but mm. they were just the first songs that yeah. I wrote. That, that's the sort of stuff that I was yeah. writing at that time. And it was just in keeping with what was being written at that time. You know, I was listening to the Beatles a lot. I mean, they, Dick James was next door. Caleb Quay was bringing in demos before they'd gone out onto the streets of the Beatles. So I was listening to everything before it was even finished um, by the Beatles. And so I was very influenced by them. And because I was friends with George, and it was, you know, I mean, they raised the bar, as someone said, so high. It's hard for even to even these days, to actually get above it, you know. Um, but, but And, of course, and Andrew Oldham had the publishing of the, of the Beach Boys, immediate records, uh, immediate publishing. So I was listening to Pet Sounds before, you know, and all those albums before they'd even hit the streets, you know. So I was very influenced by them as well, and the Mamas and the Papas, Lou Adler, you know. Your mess and cheese is 
the material in that period does seem to sort of cross that bridge between the Beatles on one side and the Beach Boys another. And, that, and I think that for many people, that's what that makes that period uh, special for them, is, is that kind of blend, blend of those two elements. Yeah, I'd say that was absolutely correct. You know, other than the fact that they were the first songs that I'd written. I was 17 or something. Yeah. And I was very naive in a lot of ways, you know. But, um, I mean, melodically, there was sort of, you could see they're written by a young, a young person. And the lyrics are very, very naive. But then it was, um, it is a bit of a snapshot of that time. And it's, it turned out to be quite a, a nicely recorded album, you know. With with some fantastic playing on it from different people, I'm just beginning to find out who actually played on it. I mean, it's obviously the Small Faces, Nicky Hopkins, Caleb mm. Quay, Big Jim Sullivan, all these. I'm just and I think that, that I've found out. Well, very soon I'm going to find out who played all the session drumming on it. But you know, no one can remember. It's all done in about a week or two. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, because you, you mentioned about the, the playing there. There's a, there's a lead guitar on "Girl from New York," which I understand was Steve playing. Yeah, Steve. We, that wasn't done at Olympic. The only track that I think that wasn't done at Olympic that was um, done at I think maybe IBC or Pi. I think it was IBC. I remember him playing a black electric guitar. I think it was a black. Could have been a Black Beauty. I'm not sure. Um, there was um, Jerry Shirley on drums. It was the beginning when Steve was looking around. And the beginning of Humble Pie, he was using people that would have ended up in Humble Pie. And they played on Girl from New York. And I remember Steve played the most amazing um, guitar solo all, all the way through. And then at the very end of the track, he he pulled the neck so hard to get what he wanted out of the guitar. It's, it's, it snapped. It's, it's snapped. He snapped wow. the, the the neck in half. Hmm. And and he just went, oh, well, there you go. That's typical Steve. You know, He wasn't really upset. He went, well, well there you are. <laughs> Um, but what he got out of it was fantastic. I think it's probably one one of the best guitar solos he's ever done. I think mm, special. Yeah. yeah, very lucky I was actually. <laughs>
the sort of last batch of songs from this period I wanted to talk about briefly was uh, Life is Short, and I, I've picked Diana Gillespie's version of that. I know she also pre- uh, recorded London Social Degree. Mm. So did you mention that you, you did um, backing vocals on Diana's album? Or some those your tracks on that? Yeah, yeah. On the, I, I probably did backing vocals just on the tracks that I'd yeah. written, I think. I think the producer, whoever he was, wanted me to be there, and Andrew was there, I remember Andrew being there. And, um, you know, I was friends with Diana. She was a lovely, lovely mm. lady. And, um, yeah, so we we worked together on yeah. that. Was it Mike Vickers who was involved on, on the production of, of... That's it, yes. Yes, he was, yeah. 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 So did, did you kind of have any input in the the production of, of that, or, or suggestions on the sound of that? Or was it like, that's my demo now and sort of over to you? I think it was over to you, yeah. And I can't yeah. remember whether I played guitar on it. I'm not sure. I might have, but I do remember singing backing vocals more than anything else. Um, but that's about all I can remember, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> spoken to a, a few people recently involved in the, the immediate stable uh paul corder as well as uh, andrew oldham the thing that i seem to take away from that is just you know you've mentioned about the, the amount of studio time strings etc i'm assuming that kind of that those those costs kind of just weighed down on the label and then the whole thing sort of fell away and i guess this the, the, the famous story about the 
would you believe album kind of not getting full release what did you do afterwards and how was it felt after kind of you know such a vibrant period yeah well unfortunately you know we finished the album and it coincided with everything falling apart at media so uh, i think a hundred copies got pressed up for djs to be sent out which they did i think i mean i've got a couple of copies and that's why it's such a rarity but the the reason why it's it's uh so sought after is because wasn't a bad album <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, and if it had been released if it had mm. been pushed if we had to spend the money that we spent on the album on on you know getting behind it it would have yeah. probably been quite a big album yeah um because it's now a very big album you know um, but um there you are things happen like that you know and uh same, pretty much the same thing happened with my next album love songs i, I recorded the album called love songs at gm records and uh, that folded as as I finished the album, so that didn't get. Yeah, same thing happened. Was it that after kind of immediate fell away? You you went over to America to regroup. Was that correct? Yeah, I was I was friends with Andrew, and um, I was very very disillusioned with the business. You can imagine, I was still very young, mm. but um, doing all that work and then nothing, <laughs> nothing happening. Um, Andrew bought a house in Connecticut, in Wilson, Connecticut, and. Um, you know, I had a chat with him, and I said, he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know, I don't know. But he said, well, I've got this house in Connecticut, if you fancy going over there and looking after it for a few months. It had a piano there, and it had a, a Hammond organ, and so I took my, I think I, I took my guitar, but anyway, I said, okay, I've got nothing to lose, so I, I ended up staying there for six months, and learning how to play the piano, well, not learning how to play, but right. writing on the piano, it's all what I do is a bit of a means to an end. I'm not very proficient in either guitar or, yeah. or piano. It's just to get songs out there. And so I spent a wonderful six months in, in, in a lovely big house in Connecticut. And then the small faces, came, not small faces, the faces that came and stayed with me for a week and um, they rehearsed Maybe I'm Amazed and stuff like that. And so we had some nice times there. One of my favourite tracks of yours has always been White Lightning, which is from Love Songs. What what are your memories of of writing and recording that track? Of you know the band that you had on recording that album is is pretty special. Yeah, the, on the Love Songs album, I, it was just really it was um, the majority of it was me and um, my, myself and Caleb Quay, mm. and the two of us basically did the whole album. There was a couple, uh, one track I know that I recorded at Pete Townsend Studio, um, Hopeless Helpless, with Pete engineering and playing stuff on it. I think. Um, not sure whether anything else was written. Any, uh, oh, yeah, the cue was that that wasn't recorded at um, Olympic. It started. It might have ended up at Olympic, but like like um, like hopeless, helpless. But it started life um, somewhere else. And I think I got a call from Ron Neverson once. I was staying at Ronnie Lane's flat in Richmond, and he said, um, "Do you want to come and record up at the Wick, a cottage where Ronnie Lane's?" mobile studio was being built and it was um and i said well i haven't got anything he said well just come up you know and play anything and when i got there there was mac and all sorts of people me and mccrag and they're all waiting ronnie wood and i just started playing three chords on the guitar wow. and we all yeah. and that's just that was the beginning of q and it's the first track that was ever recorded on that ronnie lane's mobile so i, I just took the we just jammed and then then i took the what the tape to olympic and wrote a song around it mm. 
that's that was the beginning of Q. Anyway, that's how it ends up. Yeah, and and then for white. And, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you asked about White Lightning. Probably is one of the most special tracks on that album for me because that was um, I was beginning to get into Meher Barber quite heavily. You know, the yeah. the Avatar. Yeah. And that song is really about what happened to me when I was a very young boy. It was a true story, and I, my mum took me to the dentist, and um, I was put out to have a double tooth taken out. I was about seven years old, I think, maybe eight. And I experienced this amazing experience while I was put out, in, and I just saw angels. No, no, I didn't see angels. I just saw these golden bars and blue, blue and gold bars mm. and of, of light. Like almost like a golden gate, or um, but the sound was just—I can only describe it as like a million angels singing one singing one note, only all in harmony. Wow! Just you know, not a melody, just a sound of, mm. and I, it was the most extraordinary experience, and I've never forgotten it. But then, when I got older, and I've and you know dabbled in a bit of smoking this and smoking that, I didn't take any yeah. psychological stuff, you know, say so like psycho drugs, but. Mm. So the story is about is about that boy, but then eventually finding Mahababa really, and that that was it. And I, wow. but I, I think that was that's uh, that's that's that in a nutshell, really. Please, mommy, please don't take me. I've got a toothache, but that's okay Give me some time, and tonight in my bedroom I'll work it loose like I always do Sitting there The same little boy With a few more years Took a sniff of this A taste of that What a drag Nothing there And then one day He saw you walk And heard you didn't talk Saw the writing on the
you've mentioned about the the um, again, unfortunately, the the label that released Love Songs uh, collapse, and and then you know I want to talk about the sort of White Horse sessions, and I, yeah. I think you've referred to this briefly, writing with John Lind, etc. Yeah, John Lynn, Kenny Altman, that was the band, and um, went to Los Angeles, did the same thing again, stayed there for months and months and months, and recorded the album, Capitol Records, um, and then it was about to be released, and a band called White Horse, who we didn't know existed, threatened to sue us if we went out on the road. We couldn't promote it. (laughs) So I was hit again, you know, basically. The same, exactly the same thing happened. Another album, so that was the third album I did, and nothing could be done with it, really. I mean, the the good thing about that that period of, of yours that um, quite a few of the tracks were recorded by other artists that we'll be talking about later that became very successful. Yeah, the, one of the tracks that I wanted to pick, which is a White Horse version, was uh, "It Doesn't Take Much." What What are your recollections of of that track? Yeah, that was on the bar- originally started life on a Barber album, the first Barber album I worked. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's on the I Am album. Um, and I've, I've rewrote it slightly, and everyone liked that song, but the record company, so we recorded the version of it. It was, it was okay. That's got Caleb Quay on it as well, because Caleb was living in Los Angeles at the time. So it's amazing that he, we were back together again after Love Songs, and they played on my first three albums eventually, Caleb.
But the, the the best song on that album for me though was uh, "Without Your Love." Was that? There's no question. That's probably the best song I've ever, probably the best song I've written ever in my life. And that was about Mary Barber. And that that was written in a very 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 short space of time. And I was tuning guitar in a, in a very different way than than anyone else had written um, a, a tuned a guitar. And it just fell into into place. The lyrics came almost exactly the same time as the melody. And when that happens, you know you're onto something. In fact, I just played it this morning <laughs> before you phoned. Brilliant. And, and of course, that 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 song became famous because uh, Roger Daltrey covered it uh, as part of the McVicker project. Yeah, and Pete was very instrumental in that. But um, Pete, um, Roger asked me. I think Pete or Roger asked me to write some music for the film. I I read the the book, which I thought was amazing by John McVicker. Uh, the script I didn't like so much, but I'd already written, because of the book, I'd written some songs. And then Pete said, you know what, to Roger, you should really record, you should really record Without Your Love. It's a fantastic, it was one of Pete's favourite songs. And um, they used it in the film. And then I, you know, all the other songs I wrote, especially for McVicker. I think except for maybe White City Lights, that's got a um, barber kind of connotation to it as well. I've tried to make a lot of songs that I write ambiguous. They can be about various aspects. You can show me the way Give me a sunny What does it mean without your love? And if I could travel far If I could touch the stars Where would I be without your love? Whenever I get to Be 
without your love And what does it mean without your love Where would I be Might be the most commercially successful song that, that that you've written, which again was from that White House period. I've chosen Leo Sayer's version of "I Can't Stop Loving You." I mean, massive, yeah. massive track for for yeah. quite a few artists. Um, yeah, what happened was, I, as I said, the album didn't do anything because it was never promoted. But then a friend of mine, Tim Pryor, was in America, and um, when I got back, I was back in England, and he he loved the album, and he heard that Leo Sayer was had recorded an album, but with Rupert Perry, I think. Um, but they hadn't got a single. And so he, he went through the, the motions and got this song to Leo Sayer. And of course, Rupert Perry heard it and said, OK, that's it. That's, we're doing that. That's a single. And it, that's what happened to it. So he had a massive hit with it, yeah. Mm. More recently, uh, Phil Collins did a version as well. Yeah, apparently Phil, I, I spoke to Phil. Phil, um, you know, asked him about that. And he said he was in the shower. It's typical, isn't it? He was in the shower one day. <laughs> And he, he loved the song. He always said, he always said he'd always loved the song. And he started singing in the show. And he, he, was, he was looking for more material for his album. And mm-hmm. um, But he did a, a different version of it in, in as much as it's not a 3-4 waltz time. It was, um, he did it 4-4 mm-hmm. four, four and put his own stuff into it. And yeah, he did a great version of it, but in a totally different vein. Yeah. So you leaving in the morning on the earth. Say everything's alright I could pretend and say goodbye Got your ticket Got your suitcase Got your leaving smile I could say that's the
some of your material that got got released about 20 years ago a collection of your material penumbra moon uh, in terms of that song was that just part of the material that you were demoing in the the late 70s yeah that, i was demoing a lot of my stuff at pete townsend's studio in in um twickenham eel pie studios it was called oceanic then and then changed eel pie i think and then um but pete had a lovely studio there and um i was very you know it was very generous of him to let me record my demos there so a lot of the stuff that was on the penumbra moon album um well penumbra moon that track was started life at that, that studio and then i finished it off with phil chapman in shepherd's bush um at his studio Standing in the moonlight I saw you standing in the moonlight With your hair and shining blue eyes Shivered in the midnight air He was in the shadows He was hiding in the shadows why he looks so dark and cold and lonely, only heaven knows. Open umbrella, just like that moon. Some of it black, some of it bright, some of it blue. I'm just like you Feeling so shy Hiding behind Somebody too Oh, I'm just like you If I could have one wish Oh, I'd take you on a starship But I wouldn't know what to do with All the love I have for you Nothing much between us No, there's nothing much between us even Mercury and Venus couldn't take me far from you. Open umbrella, just like that moon. Some of it black, some of it bright, some of it. I'm just like you Feeling so shy Hiding behind Somebody too Oh, I'm just like you 
And then by the mid to, to late 80s, I think you were kind of more heavily, started to get more heavily involved with The Who that was taking up some of your time. Yeah, well, Pete um, asked me if he, would, he wanted to do a solo concert in Brixton, uh, Brixton Academy. And um, he asked me if I'd help musical direct it, which I did. And then after that, it was a big success. It was a great band with Simon Phillips, Dave Gilmore on guitar and all sorts of people. Um, and then after that, Pete asked me if I'd help musical direct the next tour with um, the band. And I'd already sung backing vocals. I knew the band, really, but they were all friends of mine because I'd sung back- lots of backing vocals on their albums. And so they said, would you come out on the road and just be help musical direct and sing backing vocals, which I did on the 89 tour. But that was a that was a big tour with a big band, you know, because Pete wanted to do all sorts of music mm. on that. And um, Yeah, so I was musical director for quite a few years after that. In fact, uh, as soon as I put the phone down to you, I'm afraid I've got to rush off and um, drive back to London because I'd be nice to help out with their new album. I'm starting that tomorrow. And then I'll be going on the road with them, I think, in the summer, that's America. Brilliant. Back on the road singing. <laughs> Brilliant. So I think in in that late 80s, early 90s period, you, you linked up with Phil Manzanera and uh, released, you know, again, I don't know if it's widely heard, but one of your sort of signature tracks, Under One Banner. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of, that, that, that's another Barber song, really. Um yeah, I, I, I talked up with Phil. Via my my brother was working there. Michael was working at Phil Manzanera's studio, and um, Phil asked me if I'd come and do some writing with him. So I did, and we, I just ended up writing an album there um, with Phil co-writing some of it. But the, the main track on that album is under one banner, and it's but it is a barber song, really. It's about yeah. As Barber used to say, he's he, one of his. Things that he says quite a lot. It's like almost, almost like the jobs that he had to do this time was to bring all religions together like beads on a string, and that, and so that's what Under One Banner is all about, really. Now is the time to lay down your cloaks and your daggers. Don't you see that? Come and change is in the world. 
and then um, start moving to some of your sort of more recent solo work. Um, there's a there's a song from Still Entwined, which I think is from I don't know about 2005. Only a passing show, and I understand that was yeah. written with Ronnie, or you took a melody of Ronnie's. Yeah, when Ronnie Ronnie wasn't very well, it was while he was still in London, he was living in. Um, Camden, I think, and um, I went over to see him one day, and um, he played me a tune, on, and I think it was him and Mickey Gallagher from the Blockheads, mm. and I said that's really lovely, Ronnie. When I said put some words to that because that's really lovely, and he said no, you do it. So I can't be possible. So he gave me a, a cassette of it, and I did. You know, mm. I took it home, and I didn't. Even, think anything of it really not thinking anything of it but I, I, it, it ended up on the shelf because I, I was doing so much stuff and then um, after Ronnie um, actually it was before Ronnie died I said I, I put some some words to that and um, it's, uh, but unfortunately he never got to hear it um, he died before he could hear it but I, I persevered with that and um, yes yeah, that's passing show once again it's another barber influenced song a bit dark but it's it's uh yeah that's the story behind that mm. that does seem to be a bit of a theme in in some of your material is is the um some of the best material does seem to have that sort of that barber link there yeah it's as i say i, I do it affects my life so heavily but i don't you know i don't want to, i don't sing about um in as much like mentioning names and all the rest of it, but yeah. when I'm um, when I'm sitting down to write music or words, it takes over, you know. And so, but it can be inf- uh, looked at as if I'm singing about someone, someone else, like a, mm. a, a relationship that I'm having. And sometimes I might be going through a bad time or a good time, and I just can't help it but to bring him into it, bring what some of the things that he said into it. Yeah, I guess that's what what happens a lot, actually.
a pack of lies The actor played himself The minstrel sang the same old rhyme The magician cast his spell upon me This will always be a passing show But I remember what the old man said to me This will always be a passing show Bringing us more up to date, uh, there's a there's a track from A Secret Game, uh, the album that I want to play, Waiting for a Friend. What are your recollections of... Oh, right. Well, yeah, Waiting for a Friend was on the McVicker album. Yeah, when he was on the run, um, he was picked up by a total stranger and looked after, well, taken somewhere to a safe house. And um, it was about that. I, I thought that was an amazing thing, that he was, he was on the run from prison. Um, and a, a total stranger knew that he was on the run and the hierarchy that happens, well, I don't know if that's the right word, but in these gangsters and they tend to look after each other and a total stranger picked him up and, and took him to a safe house and that was it. And I thought well, that was an amazing thing. So that's where Wink for a Friend comes from. But then <laughs> I, if you listen to the words, Barbara comes, creeps into that as well because I'm singing about um, the last verse, every life, every one. Mm. If I knew them, I'd probably take out a gun, meaning I'd kill myself. If you knew, if you knew all the all the lives that you'd lived before, you'd go mad. Every life, everyone. If I knew them, I'd probably take out a, a gun, black or white, good and bad. How many times have I done this and done that? It's Mother Nature's law to get you coming back for some more instead of laying by the roadside waiting for a friend to come. That's a barber bit that's been chucked in at the end. <laughs> I don't know whether Roger or anyone realised it. <laughs> Would you dive in or would 
stand there and cake if I drowned? Would you jump? Or would you let the water burst in my lungs? Well, a stranger on the street may be the only one on his knees. When you're laying by the roadside waiting for a friend to come. my doubts A gut reaction says I've got to find out who's against who to trust You never know I might get killed in the rush but a stranger on the street may be the only one on his knees When you're laying by the roadside waiting for a friend to come a joke just stand there grinning but will you be there at the post when I ain't winning black or white good and bad how many times have I done this and done that every life everyone If I knew them, I'd probably take out a gun But it's Mother Nature's law To get you coming back for more Instead of laying by the roadside Waiting for a friend to come Laying by the roadside Waiting for a friend to come And to close, our, our final track is a song that you referred to um, a number of times in the show today, and that, that's Q, and you've recorded that with uh, Slim Chance for the, the new album, New Cross Road. Yeah. What was it that made you want to revisit that song in particular? I didn't, actually. It was the band. Oh. They they heard they haven't heard all my stuff. So to this day, they haven't. Um, I think Steve Simpson, I, I might have sent him quite a few CDs, but he may have been instrumental in choosing that track but they wanted to do either that or another song of love songs called um overnight train oh, yeah. um there's loads that we could have done but because it's got a sort of a slight sort of reggae bit up you know mm. it would have suited the band and it does it, it sort of suits it just like squeeze box suits the band you know it was good things we needed something like that on the album and not one of my sort of down songs <laughs> you know we wanted something because when we do live stuff, we do, we do can't stop loving you, which is it. It brings it down. It brings the show down. It's everyone's everyone's singing along in yeah. the audience. But Slim Chance is more of an up band, you know. It, it's um. Well, I know that Ronnie wrote other songs that are quite sort of serious and slow and sad and like Annie, um, more reflective, I should say. But um, when you when you come to see Slim Chance, it's usually a good time. It's a very up time, you know, and that's why I love being in the band, you know. And well, because of my relationship with the band and with Ronnie. And I guess, I guess uh, you know, playing with Slim Chance is, is a you know a, a small way of getting a bit of Ronnie's spirit in, in, into into your life, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that I was so close with Ronnie all those years ago that I, 
I used to hear a lot of this stuff before while we, while he was writing it. You know, I, I'd see him pr- pretty much every day. <laughs> Sounds really weird, but you know, I'd see him in hmm. Richmond pretty much every day, and we just hang out and play. And you know, so um, although we never, apart from passing show, we never really sat down and wrote together. But just one, I don't know why that was. But anyway. <laughs> It sounds like you've got an incredibly busy year. I can I can see that, that the Slim Chance Band have got a, a range of dates coming up. You've mentioned about re- yeah. recording and uh, playing with the Who, and then yeah. uh, you know, it, will there be time for your solo uh, material as well? No, well, that's that's the tricky part. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I write all the time, so it doesn't matter where I am. I'm always writing. We've got about six or seven songs on the go, and that need lyrics too, or whatever I need finishing off. But no, it's going to be quite quite a heavy year with um trying to sort of i might have to miss a couple of the slim chance gigs because of my work with the who which which is really unfortunate or or reschedule but um no i don't want to miss a miss a a show with slim chance really because i enjoy it so much and uh but it's going to be exciting it'd be great Mm. be great um, working with the who again especially with pete and roger you know and uh and zach and simon townsend they're all, all good mates of mine so it'd be great for us all to i can't wait to see them all again again tomorrow actually it's gonna mm. be like old times be lots of hugging and we won't get much work done but maybe maybe on sunday when we get when we get in <laughs> again <laughs> but um yeah so i'm afraid i'm gonna to have to go i've got to, I've got to drive back from lime regis to and it snowed here last night and i'm gonna battle with the snow so yeah no it's it's brilliant and we've covered absolutely everything and i think thank you so much for your time billy honestly it's such a pleasure and uh your music does honestly mean so much to me and it's great to play a selection of songs today so thank you jason it's really really good talking to you and if you need anything else that you haven't got just give me a call and i'll, I'll send it to you okay thanks a lot cheers billy bye-bye all right bye
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.